Okay, so uh, yeah, my name is Jim, and uh, not so long ago I, I got a call from Ben, who's sitting here. And uh, Ben was calling, we uh, were in graduate school together once upon a time, and I was doing film studies and cinema and, and TV stuff, and he was also doing that kind of thing, but also getting a production degree. So we had these kind of conversations as, as the years have gone on. And this one uh, started out on the phone with uh, him asking me about critical theory, critical discussions around radio. Why isn't there much of it, he asked me. And uh, again, not having been in the field, my response to him was, well, I don't know, you do radio, why isn't there? And uh, fundamentally then, uh, that's the, that's the uh, narrative structure of this particular talk. That is to say, what do you think? I don't know, what do you think? Uh, with the addition today, uh, that we want to include you guys in this discussion as well. That is to say, and what do you think? With you being the collective third person. Uh, our discussions actually had a few more questions in there before we gave way, and that they are uh, also on the overhead here. What is it we mean by theory or critical analysis anyway? What kind of radio are we talking about here exactly? That kind of interesting term we're going to think about here today. And uh, why do you ask? Oh, what's, what's it matter? What's at stake in the question and in the call? So, Ben, let's begin with the last well, question. Yeah, so I mean, I kind of set out trying to think more about, um, you know, why does this matter? Why? I, mean, I had a sense that this mattered in some way, um, mostly because, uh, you know, other art forms, art, architecture, music even, um, there is a body of theory and of critical literature. These kind of discussions kind of go on about, you know, the underlying assumptions of the work and why we make things the way we do and what other forms are possible. And this conversations are ongoing, but they're not really so much in, in radio. So, um, or at least in radio documentaries, we're going to talk about it here. Uh, so I started thinking about, well, what, what are the, what, what were the, the concrete value of us as producers uh, of asking some of these kind of questions? Uh, and some of the things I was thinking about were, uh, well, one, one sense, it, would, it might help push us to push the boundaries of what we do as, as creators of our work. Um, it could also give audiences new ways to appreciate the work and think about the work. Uh, and it, it also, in some sense, might help build a history for the work that we do. It would not be quite as ephemeral, ephemeral as it is now if it were codified and written down and discussed and there was some history of that conversation. Uh, I think it also, in some sense, could help us build a sense of community on, among producers. I mean, we come to this conference, for example, and talk about all these questions to some extent, but it's once a year. We do it in this kind of isolated community away from the rest of the world. Uh, and it could also allow us as producers to peek behind some of the questions uh, and assumptions we have that we work with about the form that, that we have, as, as that we know as radio documentary. Uh, you know, we do have things like uh, transom, you know, an occasional article, um, a compilation sometimes of some articles about radio, um, but we really don't have much basic discussion of the basic questions of, of our work. Uh, and so finally, I would say this, you know, if there was a body of critical work or this kind of discussion, my hope would, would be that it would create a richer ecology of producing around these kind of ideas and thinking about what we do. And also hopefully in some way it'll be interesting and just kind of fun, another way to explore and think about what we, what we care about and what we, what we love as producers. Um, to kind of talk about this a little more, we're gonna look at uh, two works, two creative works. Um, 
This is, is number one of the two. Um, this, I mean, I can see people looking kind of quizzically and like, well, you know, what is this? I mean, if you know what it is, it's an, ab it's an Aboriginal painting from Central Australia. And I think we look at it as we being people from our cultural context. We look at that as maybe some kind of an abstract kind of piece of work. Um, but um, as it's been explained to me recently, um, it's not, it's far from that. Um, and maybe I'll just kind of tell you a little bit of the, what this is and what the narrative is behind it. Um, this is uh, a representation of a, of a kind of creation myth. Um, the people in the Aboriginal culture there, um, they have creation myths for pretty much every geological formation that they live in that's around them. When they go into a new area, they'll frequently, if they see some rock formation or cliff or something, they'll find people who are, live near there and they'll ask them, you know, how did that come to be? What's the story behind that? And this is one of those stories. And it is about, I'm um, just to breeze this quickly, um, but give you a sense of some of the kind of complexity of this. This is kind of an aerial view of a, of a battle that occurred. Um, and it's, it's a story about a couple who were from two different clans and they came together and there were two factions of their community. One thought they should be together, one thought they shouldn't be together. So what you actually see here is this is like an aerial view of, of what happened. This is one faction of the clan there, and the upper left is the other one. In the center is those concentric rings represent the couple. Um, the dots apparently are all kind of about indicating that action happened. Um, and you see, it's kind of a little fuzzy here, but there are also little footprints around the, those white footprints. Those are um, the footprints of badgers who apparently came in this story and rescued the couple from this whole thing. And the other shapes are actually shapes of like, you know, geological formations. I don't know exactly where they are, but so that's how they explain how like this, you know, valley, whatever it is, came to be. So people in that culture look at this and they, they it resonates with them, they understand it. Um, it has this meaning in terms of, you know, this geology, has a meaning in terms of their culture and their history and the origins of their culture. It's a very rich text. Um, on another level even, this actually painting not only refers to those events, it also refers to uh, the rituals that they enact to tell this story. So there's a huge amount going, going on there, which we don't really understand or really think about unless it's explained to us. Um, so now we're going to listen to a piece of radio, um, another cultural work. Um, we're going to listen to a little excerpt about three minutes long from the Sonic Memorial uh, project, which was this hour-long radio piece. Um, kind of commemorating 9-11 uh, in the World Trade Center. Um, the piece was, just to set it up a little bit, the piece um, kind of ran chronologically, talked about the history of how the World Trade Center was built, and talked about what happened after 9-11. And this little chunk we're gonna hear now is um, the three minutes of the story that um, actually describes the events of 9-11. So we'll just listen to that and talk about it afterwards. <laughs> the time. This is 1010 Winds. You give us 22 minutes. We'll give you the world. Good morning. 64 degrees at 8 o'clock. It's Tuesday, September 11th. I'm Lee Harris. Here's what's happening. It's primary day and the polls are open in New York City. Voters are deciding among about 250 candidates for mayor, city council. Could be a beautiful day today. Sunshine throughout. Really a splendid September day. The afternoon temperature. My name is Stephen Manning. I, um, headed downtown at 8 o'clock on, on that day 
and uh, I was on my way to buy the new Bob Dylan record, which had just been released that day, and I wanted to pick it up at JNR Music World, a few blocks down from the World Trade Center. I emerged from the Chamber Street subway when I heard a deafening roar overhead, and I wheeled around, looked up, and saw the first jetliner plow into the Trade Center. I had my tape recorder with me because I was actually going uptown to do an interview later in the day. I turned it on, I raced towards the Twin Towers. We heard this unbelievable sound and um, looked up and saw that uh, Tower One was cracking open and I just started running. Attention, 68 engines, 35 engines, 50 engines, 64 engines. I've got my back to the sun cause the light is too intense. I can't see what everybody in the world is up against. Turn back You can't come back Sometimes we push too far One day You'll open up your eyes And you'll see where we September 11th at 8.59 a.m. Hey, Beverly, this is Sean. In case you get uh, get this message, uh, there's been an explosion in World Trade 1. That's the other building. It looks like a plane struck it um, it's on fire at about the 90th floor, and it's, it's, it's horrible. <laughs> Bye. Received September 11th. At 9.02 a.m. Yeah, honey, this is Sean again. Uh, looks like we'll be in this tower for a while. Um, it's it's uh, secure here. But I'll talk to you later. Bye. Okay. Um, well, I mean, there's a couple things about this. Um, uh, one is, I haven't listened to this, in, and we made this in 2002, and I haven't listened to it in a few years, and, um, and it was very, I mean, it's a very intense piece, I mean, there's some really intense pieces of tape in there. Um, but I feel like it, since then, it's taken on this almost other quality, it's like this totemic quality to it that's kind of even different than it was just a few years ago. Um, but the reason, why, one of the reasons why I juxtapose this and the, the Aboriginal painting is just to, 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 su to suggest this question of, uh, uh, you know, we listen kind of automatically, um, but that process of listening is is complicated. You know, why does this piece of radio move us in a certain way when, at least for us, that painting that painting doesn't? And obviously, it's because you know we have a certain relationship with this work. That work, uh, the radio piece, interacts with us and the way we think and our understanding of story in, in a in a certain way. Um, I think it's especially true in the case of this piece. I mean, it's it's kind of an odd piece in a way. I mean, there's no narration really. Um, there's there's kind of the central character of this guy who's going 
you know, tells a story of seeing the building collapse, but then he kind of isn't there. Um, you know, the whole piece is made up. I mean, I can list the, the, the elements of the piece. Um, you know, there's the live radio, the newscast. There's the, the phone message recording. Um, there's that commercial CD, the, the Bob Dylan CD that was released that day, the emergency radio calls from the rescue squad, and then the voice messages um, from the people in the towers. Um, but, you know, so it's kind of this odd, it's like a sound collage, but it's also a story. Um, so the question is, you know, how do we make sense of that? How do we, um, as listeners, you know, how, why are we moved by that? And, and, and also, how did the producers, what choices did the producers make to, to have that effect on us or allow us to respond to the piece in a certain way? Uh, and so in short, I mean, how can we begin to understand uh, and perhaps even theorize about um, you know, what radio or audio storytelling is and how it works, um, you know, why it creates meaning, uh, why we make the pieces exactly the way we do, uh, you know, why does the Sonic Memorial, why does this piece sound the way it sounds and, and not another way, essentially? Yeah, so our, our purposes then are, are uh, in, in creating a discussion like this, both literally here and figuratively in the, in the larger sense, are to do the opposite of the sort of theoretical camps uh, and academic tribes that, from which we kind of met each other and we were members of those tribes opposite of what one tends to associate with theory and, and discussions of theory, that that would be it. In fact, we want to build a community based on shared insight and discussion, which is not to say that's what doesn't inform those camps also. But the theory really means then distance in a somewhat paradoxical way, uh, uh, seeming, seeing connections by taking things apart. I was, I was going to add, yeah, I mean, I think that's an that's a important notion, this idea of distance, just simply because we are so used to thinking the way we think. I mean... You know, I mean, when I'm editing a piece, I focus deliberately on the piece and how it's working. I kind of do the opposite of, I, I tend not to step back and think, you know, these big picture questions about, you know, exactly why are we even telling stories in this particular manner. We're just trying to focus all the time on how to tell the best story and the way we tell them. Yeah, and stepping back by stepping up, you know, that kind of paradox. And then what we're going to spend the next while is finding historical antecedents, uh, continuity of unmoor, unmooring the studied objects from its place, which is kind of what's happening here with that totemic <laughs> nature. It's already becoming unmoored from 9-11 in some way, even though it's so deeply embedded in it. Uh, so it's, the objects are kind of doing it themselves, but we're pushing it that way as, as theorists, as discussants. And to, to sort of dehistoricize, to delocate, to unlocate it, it specifically so that we can understand the fact that it is historicized and specifically located. So again, that kind of paradoxical act that is the uh, critical discussion, perhaps. It gives you a sort of critical view, to use a phrase, or in, as, as the title of our talk suggests in this context, enables a critical listening. Uh, so that's what we're after in general, and I know that's what all of us are after in general, too. We're just trying to push, the, uh, push it forward a little bit. And, and so specific questions are as follows. How do people make sense out of the audio we send them? And I, I like that phrase, send them. How do we, as producers, know how listeners will experience what we do again? Why do audiences enjoy listening to our pieces, assuming they do? Which is, yeah, which is not a trivial question, really. I mean, it kind of seems like, why do people enjoy it? But, you know, that's, it's not obvious, no. necessarily. And do specific producers have themes or perspectives or styles that appear across their work? And what are they, if so? What are the storytelling conventions we apply to all our work? What do we share without maybe out knowing it? And where do these conventions come from, again, historically, across media, through time, from aboriginal tribes of all sorts? 
uh, you know, one thing about this is, you know, this is this is all this is all pretty new. Um, I want to take a minute to just a few minutes now to to kind of look at a little um, of the historical antecedents of the kind of work we do, the kind of documentary work we do. Um, I mean, as we've, as we've kind of alluded to already, this didn't come out of nowhere. Um, this the particular kind of audio storytelling we do. Uh, and we're listening now to uh, a recording made in 1904. This was kind of a surprise to me when I discovered this, uh, these kind of recordings. Um, this is called uh, New Year's at Old Trinity. And now this was, um, just to place this in context, this was you know, 15 years or more before the first radio stations were on the air, more than that before they became really popular. Uh, you know, this is also like 20, more than 20 years before electrical recording happened. So what you're about to hear was made, you know, people gather around a horn on an old-fashioned recording device. Um, but what's interesting to me about it is it is a kind of, as you'll hear, an example of early audio storytelling and, and scene setting. Um, these recordings like this were fairly popular at the time and were sold as commercial, commercial recordings. Um, the other thing about this too, I mean, it, it, you'll hear it describes a scene on New Year's Eve um, in front of Trinity Church in Manhattan, which is kind of a nice bookend with the Sonic Memorial piece at the other end of the 20th century. It's, about a, it's actually located about a block away from the World Trade Center. The church is still there and it's, it's about a block away. So we'll, we'll listen to a little, a little bit of this. You'll find the humor is, is um, uh, dated and kind of a problematic joke or two, but um, we'll listen to the first minute and just as a way of listening to the kind of sonic texture of it. the black-eyed girl. Well, sir, that girl was engaged to three fellows at once. Here, here. Move on there. Don't lock up the sidewalk. Come out the street, boys, and I'll finish the story. Now, you know what a flirt that girl was. Ah, get out of the way there. You guys want to get killed? <laughs> So, um, I mean, I don't know if you c could follow that at all. I think I was at that party. <laughs> <laughs> Suddenly it's coming back. There's a car, you know, the car drives by, runs over the dog. There's this little scene with these guys outside the church on New Year's Eve, all the sounds of New Year's. Eventually, if you listen to the rest of it, it goes on for about three or four minutes. Other people come by, and New Year's happens, and they all celebrate, and it's this whole thing. So this is, to me, is kind of a, like at least the first marker in this little, little story that we're going to uh, set out about. Um, kind of where we've arrived at in terms of our, our um, radio documentary storytelling. Uh, 
But I mean, so there clearly this is some of the first uh, media storytelling of any sort was using sound. This is 1904. Um, films were kind of showing tableaus at the time. Um, weren't even having scenes that were this complicated yet. Uh, but obviously, this is a kind of non. This is a non-fiction storytelling, right? This is a made-up scene um, created. Uh, and so we can also look at a different kind of early non-fiction radio storytelling. There's roots in newspapers. Uh, some of the first radio stations were run by newspapers. Um, they would read copy off the air. You know, radio stations still do news, you know, that way to some extent. You know, reading, and you know, we've, any of us have worked at stations, we've all done, you know, ripping the wire copy or, um, and reading it. I mean, this is a form that has really hardly changed um, in, in its basic structure in many years, 70 years at least, we can say. Um, we're going to listen to a couple of clips now. This is a newscast recorded in 1939. This is your Arrow News reporter with last minute hit the spot news, brought to you four times daily through the courtesy of Arrow Beer and Ale. Arrow Beer has such a remarkably fine taste that it's making more new friends than any other brand of beer that's sold in Washington. Here in Washington, you can get this outstandingly fine beer for only 10 cents a bottle. Arrow Beer always... And uh, now we're going to hear an NPR's newscast from a couple days ago. From NPR News in Washington, I'm Carl Castle. Pocketbook issues dominated the second presidential debate between Republican John McCain and Democrat Barack Obama. The candidates right, took questions from... Undis- so clear this is something that's kind of... It's, it's, a, it's a separate kind of way of telling, telling stories from what we do here, and it's kind of remained basically unchanged for a long time. It's kind of codified and rigid, and that's what they do. Okay? So we're, again, we're not looking for we're fictional storytelling. We're not looking for kind of the newscast storytelling. We're looking for, for something else. I was there a, yeah. But did, isn't it true that um, they used to also kind of act out different scenes in old radio newscasts where they would kind of provide fictionalized the, yeah, uh, well, there were. I mean, there were shows that were particularly specifically that. Um, there was like this show, Hear It Now, which was, you know, they would recreate whole scenes from history. Um, uh, and I think maybe the best way to respond to that is to talk about what I'm, the next thing I want to talk about, which is um, uh, telling stories of real events. I mean, you're talking about telling stories with real events that were kind of recreated with fictional fictionalized sound, fictionalized elements. And I think what we do, and what's specific about we, what we do usually, is that we tell uh, you know, stories of real life, real life. You know, not, we tell nonfiction stories using elements we gather from the world itself, you know, real sounds, as opposed to simulating sounds. I think that's probably, you know, for most of us, that's kind of the, the define, one of the defining borders of what we do is we tell, we tell real stories about real events using sounds captured from real life. So that's, I think, what I would distinguish it. I almost would put that more on the side of, like, you know, drama, uh, drama you know, historical reenactments. Um, so well, let's consider that, then, as, like, the next point in our, in our, in our story here. Um, you know, we were, people weren't doing radio, audio documentaries um, that were based on actual sound until fairly recently. But there were people who were doing a different kind of storytelling uh, using images, uh, images captured from real life. You know, some of the photographers in the 1930s and 40s. Um, you know, there were writers who were writing creative nonfiction, as we might call it, in the 30s and 40s. 
Um, but there were people who were making, really making media, working in media that, that was more like documentaries we know it. Um, and these are photographers, Walker Evans, Cartier-Bresson, as a photographer, um, Max Yavno up there. Um, and again, these are, so the, the point is these are real world moments, but they're meticulously crafted and, and selected. You know, they, they go into the world, and this is a process to me is very much like what we do. They go into the world, these photographers did. They had this idea of wanting to portray a particular social situation or context, and with enormous care, they would um, craft these images that had just the key elements to tell their story, um, nothing else. Um, and uh, uh, there's also a technological issue. And at the time, you know, there weren't portable tape recorders to go out and gather sound as we do now. I mean, there was portable equipment, but it was big and bulky. But there were starting to be small cameras, still cameras. Um, so if you wanted to go out into the world and capture real moments in a certain way, in a kind of very casual, quick way, you basically could do it with a still camera. Uh, let's move forward to that. Pass the quote. Let's go to the quote. Okay. Um, this, is, this is a quote from Henri Cartier-Bresson, who was um, you know, a central figure at this time. You know, to me, the key, the key to this is, and this, again, think of the kind of work we do as radio producers. Reality offers us such wealth that we must cut some of it out. The question is, do we always cut out what we should? While we're working, we must be conscious of what we're doing. We must avoid, however, snapping away, shooting quickly and without thought, overloading ourselves with unnecessary images that clutter our memory and dis diminish the clarity of the whole. And this, to me, is so much about the practice that we have in, in crafting a radio piece. This is kind of gathering things, being careful as we do that to get what we need, eliminating the things that kind of clutter the story that, that we want to tell. Uh, yeah, and here are some of these close-ups. This is a Walker Evans photograph. Another Walker Evans. Cartier-Bresson. I mean, again, I mean, these are things, you know, the composition is very, it's very careful. There's just that texture, the two squares, the two figures, no elements that are kind of distracting. This is like something, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a capturing of reality out in the world with a spontaneous feeling, but with a, a real meticulousness of craft. And this is kind of the final example of this um, uh, that we're going to show. But again, uh, this is a photographer, Max Yavno, and he... Can you spell the last name, please? Of this? Yeah, Y-A-V-N-O. And um, um, he, like most of these other you know, photographers, they came out of this environment in the 30s. They were all very socially concerned. They were political, generally left-wingers. Um, but then they would, I mean, this is Max Yavno's case, he began to, you know, kind of started to do, you know, he started out by doing pictures of, you know, poverty and those kind of situations, and then just became interested in the, the craft more. And this is kind of a fascinating picture to me. He did this thing where he would set up a camera in a spot, pick a spot, and then he'd like literally would sit and wait like for hours until a certain moment, and then he would like snap a picture. And so, um, this to me is a, it's the it's the interesting combination of something that at first hand it looks kind of very kind of casual, just like a picture, like a, almost like a snapshot. But when you look at it, you realize that he's gone to the real world and made this kind of very formalized thing out of it. I mean, if you, there's you know the couple in the center, there's the woman being tossed up there, there's this kid on the bars. If you look at like that row of signs, they're kind of very symmetrical with the two and two. And so once you kind of start looking at it, you realize the, the sophistication of the formality of it, even though at first glance you just kind of go like, oh, it's just, it's just the real world. Right. Um, 
Now we're going to look at, uh, for a second at these. I mean, this is a little bit more of a leap, but I think what we're really starting to talk about, um, you know, since we're talking about documentaries form in the US particularly, um, you know, those photographs, these images, um, you know, we're talking about kind of an American vernacular in some way. You know, a certain kind of look, a certain kind of quality to it. I mean, this, I mean that could be the Sunshine Hotel, right? I mean, how many of us have gone to do interviews in places that kind of looked like that or felt like that? We, you know, we know, we know what these kind of environments are like. You know, I'm, that reminds, that I saw that, I was looking at this again recently, it reminded me of that This American Life show about the diner. They did this show about 24 hours in a diner. Um, so there's something, you know, clearly about this notion of the American vernacular travels through these photographs and also re really remains with us. Yeah. I just wanted to point out that the title of the previous painting by Hopper is Sunday morning, 10 a.m. Mm -hmm. So it has like even a documentary kind of title. Yeah, which will actually also resonate. You might remember that also. When we were, I think we'll, if we have time, we're going to get to some uh, Alfred Hitchcock clips that are kind of incorporate some of that same feeling. Yeah. A real stillness, I think she said, in all the images. Yeah. Um, you mean the photographs and the paintings? Um, yeah, no, I think that's, that's true. I mean, I think that partly is... Um, I mean, I think it's just a, I mean, it's a good observation. It's like a unifying feature. I think it partly has to do with how distilled they are, you know, and how kind of clean they are and how there, there aren't any disparate elements. Um, but do you, mean, do you mean like still in the sense that like there's not a lot of action or? Actually, that was really informative, the distillation. Yeah, 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 yeah. They're very, they're very, I mean, to me, there's a certain kind of transparency to them. Again, the kind of transparency to, that you, you know, when you hear, when I hear like a really well cut piece of, tape it's like there is this kind of kind of transparency about it it's like you listen to it it's just there it sits there well you know it sits there well it doesn't distract you with other things it's just it's very clear and these these images even though they're kind of real world images from our big chaotic world we live in they have that same kind of clear which may be kind of stillness that you were you were talking about was there another something? well I just was it did lead me to wonder how in our radio craft we can evoke uh, a sense of stillness, although we are, by definition, a moving medium in time. Uh, we're not a frozen split second. We are a minute or 10 minutes or an hour or something. I mean, to me, that's partly about the, partly about the feel of a piece and the rhythm of a piece. But I think it also does have to do partly with that kind of distilled quality, something very, very clean and like just, just the essentials to me. Um, you but know, I really, I, I am really struck again. I'm going to just put that up one more time. Is that is that, that the theme that Ben's uh, suggested here is the more you look at this, the more so constructed it appears. Uh, Cindy Sherman almost, you know, it's just sort of, it, it's just amazingly formal. <laughs> when at first glance, especially in the context in which we present it with all these other uh, you know, photographers on the go. Uh, but uh, but uh, that echoes for me a lot of these questions and it brings the, hopefully back to the point of that close analysis and close view, but also informing the kind of st structure that uh, is becoming the radio doc, arguably. And I think, and I, I mean, in talks of talking about, you know, just criticism generally, I mean, this is like, and this, this discussion, looking at this image, this is, an, this is just kind of an example of, I mean, I mean, this is an art photograph, right? This isn't something that he did. I mean, there's other photographs, you know, maybe appeared in Life magazine or something, and this clearly wasn't. But these things still, the longer you look at them, the more you think about them, they kind of inspire discussion. You know, you see more things at them when you spend more time at them. So I guess I'd just to suggest that that is kind of a valuable process. Um, 
Let's go to the radio docs. I mean, to the to phone the, docs. Yeah. Um, so moving along, um, as, I, as I said, a lot of these photographers, I mean, were kind of this part of photojournalist tradition and the or activity in the 30s and 40s. You know, things would have gone to Life magazine where there were photo essays combining text and images. Um, and moving along to the 1950s, uh, uh, a, a kind of important figure came along in the history of documentary, and particularly in documentary film, a guy named Robert Drew, who was a, a fighter pilot in the Second World War. And he was the subject of a Life magazine story while he was you know, being a fighter pilot. Um, the, a, a photographer, a life photographer and writer came and, and did a piece about him. And he was so struck by that um, that, that in the 1950s he decided he was working for Time Life and he had this idea for a new kind of documentary filmmaking, new at the time. He wanted to capture real life moments like the photojournalist did but on movie film and with sound, um, you know, to be a fly on the wall. But he wanted to use uh, you know, a linear narrative to tell the, the stories of real life in, in the most classical kind of sense. And so with that idea in mind, he actually got Time Life to fund him a bunch of research, and I guess he got a grant from Neiman, actually, and he spent a year studying 19th century short story forms, just to understand how stories were really kind of constructed. And then he gathered a team of people around him, some which became later famous filmmakers, the Maisels worked with him early on, Richard Leacock, and he started making these documentary films that were, um, Again, using new technology that became available, lightweight cameras, lightweight uh, sync sound, tape recorders, um, to make these documentaries that were moments captured in real life, so actuality moments, but structured in the shape of a very classical narrative. Um, we're gonna look at an example of, of one of them that he made a few years later, um, but in very much in the same style. This is a film called Crisis, which actually you can get on DVD, it's, and I recommend it. Um, just to set it up, this was, um, you probably all know the story of um, George Wallace when he blocked the doors to the school after there was a, there was a desegregation court case, and there were the federal government in, in this court case had won this case and was forced in the state to desegregate the, desegregate the school, and George Wallace was standing in the front of the school, and there was kind of this battle between, um, essentially in, this, in the film, between the Kennedys in Washington, D.C. and George Wallace at the schoolhouse, um, and Bobby Kennedy was the attorney general, was kind of in charge of handling the situation. So, and in terms of like classical narrative, I mean, it's clearly there's a protagonist, antagonist, kind of waging over this struggle, um, and this is what I would probably say is the scene that happens at the very end of the second act, what would be the second act of this? this is about, it's actually 1961. It's 1961, it was yeah. made, and this is like three, three, four minutes. And I guess that also, one thing to throw in is notice how the function of radio in keeping this narrative is whole. They're listening to radio it's, reports. Yeah, we, a lot of the information comes across from, from, from sound. Governor George Wallace of Alabama has stood in the schoolhouse door. He has refused to permit Nicholas Katzenbach, Deputy Attorney General of the United States, and Marshal Peyton Norville, escort the two Negro students in to sign up for summer classes. Now, Nick, Nicholas Katzenbach and uh, Marshall Norville, flanking Vivian Malone, are walking down the street. Apparently, they are going to walk to another door of the schoolhouse. Where do we get by? We have now been informed that Vivian Malone is being escorted 
to a women's dormitory here on the campus of the University of Alabama. Vivian Malone is now out of our view, but the car with Jimmy Hood is leaving the area of the auditorium, presumably to go to his dormitory. Can we get hold of uh, Mr. Patson back? Hold on. Well, they, they have to read. We can only talk to them, him, through a relay, and we can hear him talk back. Well, I, I, what I'd like to do is uh, we want to go ahead and issue the proclamation, nationalize the guard, and find out what... So do you want to talk to me? Yeah. Would you mind just going back so I can have some communication? No. Are you going to get back, please? How far? Okay, go ahead. They can't hear it. I sent for the message, uh, messages as follows. Uh, Washington intends to issue the executive order to federalize the troops. Also, do you expect any problems? I do not presently expect any problems, but they are probably thinking. He is not expecting any trouble, but the people here think he is. Well, because I want to find out what the governor says. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me. Hello? Oh, Nick? Now, uh, did the governor say anything which would lead us not to issue this proclamation? Yeah. Nicholas Katzenbach has agreed that it is time for the president to sign the proclamation nationalizing the guard. Okay, the president. A call to the president. So will you issue the proclamation now, sign it? The executive order, yeah. Right now? Okay, okay. The National Guard troops arrive by mid-afternoon. Yeah, Bob wants to speak to you, though. Just a minute. Just a minute. Hey, Nick. I think we should, for two reasons, uh, try to keep the students from being addressed by the governor. One, to give him that platform, and two, to subject them to that, that uh, those insulting. General Graham, commander of the Alabama National Guard. Governor Wallace was his commander. Now, the general confronts the governor as a representative of the federal government. He is in command of 17,000 troops, 100 of which are on the campus. Coming away from the door, he is stepping aside. Governor Wallace has stepped aside, making his way away from the door. The second confrontation is over. Governor Wallace is walking out, getting into his car. State troopers, his aides are getting into his car. Going back to Montgomery, the state capital, to continue what he says is a fight. He says he's winning. So Governor George Wallace, second confrontation, has stepped aside. I just hope that uh, you'll come back to see us. Come back to see us to Alabama. 
All right, so this was, this was something new. Um, this, you know, this ability to, to gather sound um, and moving image in the field uh, and construct it into a story that has this kind of classical, classical uh, story structure. Um, I mean, we're all familiar with radio documentaries that work kind of by that same model. Um, but we also know there's a different kind of storytelling that is that has come more to the foreground since 1950s and early 60s. Uh, a, a different kind of voice, a different kind of storytelling voice. Um, uh, one first-person voice, um, one that's more reflective, perhaps ironic. Um, you know, it's frequently an element of this American Life storytelling, Scott Carrier's work. Um, and we're going to see a clip from a film that kind of operates in that mode. Um, we, we, this is interesting to me for a number of reasons, but we're gonna, this is just a three minute little clip from uh, a film by Ross McElwee, um, Time Indefinite. When I was little, my father would take me to this pier. It's a few hundred yards away from the beach house that we rent. Back then, the pier seemed to have a, a mysterious hold on me. Being underneath it was like, I don't know, it was like being in an exotic temple or a cathedral. And, and for whatever reason, it was the place I liked to play the most. It never occurred to me that there was anything interesting going on on top of the pier. But at some point, my father explained to me that piers were for fishing. And when I got a little older, that's what he and I did here. We fished. My father taught me how to clean a fish. I can't say I love doing this, but I learned to do it. My father liked to say, if you caught a fish, then you should be the one to clean it. Pick them up, put them in a bucket. Oh, damn. Well, if you want this, knock them on the head, then kill them, then put them in a bucket. Aw, Sammy. On the head, Nicholas. Yeah, I know. On the head. When I was a kid, I was also told that putting a fish out of its misery was part of fishing. Although I don't remember my father being quite as enthusiastic about the process as this father is. I'm momentarily stunned by the realization that that I may someday have a son or a daughter who, among other things, has to be taught how to fish. How in the world would I handle that? I mean, what method would I advocate? Quick death by stomping or slow suffocation in a bucket of fresh water? When I was a kid, killing a fish was traumatic enough, but an even bigger problem I had with fishing was that the fish, once caught, raised all sorts of metaphysical questions for me at least metaphysical on the level of a six-year-old who was forced to go to Sunday school. Questions my father patiently tried to answer. For instance, does a fish have a soul? If so, does God take all the dead fish into heaven? If so, is there an ocean in heaven? Or is it more like a huge aquarium? And if it's an aquarium, who cleans it? Do angels clean it? Can a fish sin? Why isn't it a sin to kill fish? Why does anyone or anything have to die? What's the matter with staying right here? I asked my father dozens of questions like these, and at one point, as I remember it, he began to avoid taking me fishing. 
Okay. Um, it's a great little piece, right? And, and uh, I mean, it, again, deceptively simple um, story structure, but there's a, there's a lot going on there. If you, if you start to look at how there's always um, interpenetrations of past and present and the other father that you see there and his questions um, about life that obviously still resonate with him in some way. Um, so this is, this is not, uh, we've moved, moved away from the classical storytelling structure of this 19th century short story mode to some extent. Um, but, I, but I would say though that that model still you know, under, un, exists beneath the surface of this story if you kind of watch the whole film. And I think in our work um, in general, even though that now we now have this other, and this is kind of the last stop on our little, our little history, mini history of, of um, of documentary. I mean, this is kind of one of the options we've, we've ended up at. But let's take a look now, I think, returning yeah. to this kind of classical story model. Okay. Are there any, any uh, qu just quickly, any thoughts on that? We are, I mean, there's a quick leap. I'm, I've been convinced by Ben easily, because I'm easily convinced by Ben, that that kind of leap, uh, when he presents this and we put this talk together, that, that McElwee piece really convinced me because it echoes so much with what I've come to associate with the form that we're more or less talking about in here on radio. And I wonder, but that's easy for me because I'm new, relatively new to it. I wonder to what extent that claim resonates for producers and people to actually make these stories in the room. Is that, is that fitting? Is that working? Is, any thoughts? You mean that? the claim that, that this is radio is that Did that feel familiar? In terms of the tone of the narration and in terms of the voice of the piece and the kind of, that kind of thinking about oneself and one's own life and the complexity of it in a way too. Yeah. Starling. I, I mean, I feel like it totally seems like radio. And usually, and actually when I offer when I watch a movie without the voiceover, I'm always surprised how many times it's like radio. Yeah. Like, it's like you can tell that it's not a radio piece because like, what's so nice about this is that it's writing. It feels like real writing. Yeah, he's a beautiful writer. He's a great writer. writer. Yeah. It's not just letting the images talk. He's like giving as much importance to the writing as to the images. And that's why I thought they go so well. Yeah, I mean, not to go into like a whole, you know, film appreciation, you know, sidebar. <laughs> but I mean, if you look at the timing of like how he delivers the information and the writing and when the, I'm always struck by, for example, I mean, the thing at the beginning with the, the cathedral underneath is, I mean, it's a beautiful shot. And it kind of really does, and we're kind of descending into this place. And what is this place? It, I mean, he talks about it being cathedral. And then it becomes this, it does become like a prayer. It's like we are in church and he's reflecting on these big questions. Um, so, I mean, that kind of happens. He sets it up in the text and also visually. I mean, there's also that thing at the end where he kind of pans off onto the water. He's talking about those questions of like, are there fish in heaven? And the camera just kind of casually kind of twists over to this kind of glittery white, you know, sunlight on the water. And that clearly evokes those kind of thoughts too about, you know, heaven and kind of beyond. And so, it, yeah, it's working on a various levels. But I mean, it's not an accident that we, we pick these clips because they are so audio heavy and kind of audio dependent in a way. If there was somebody else who was going to say something else, no? Another hand? No? Okay. Well, I think also to transition then is, again, that, that, that sense of irony, though, in that. That's what, for me, again, is a key component as I'm coming to learn with in, in that this conference and as a listener and as a you know, producer in other forms. Uh, irony is one of those kind of markers that we've claimed here to kind of mark this thing called radio documentary, a very loose and very general uh, name, uh, label to be sure. But uh, um, when, a, when a radio docs work, as I've experienced them, uh, when they get you to sit in the, in the proverbial driveway, uh, it, you know, totally engaged, you're totally hooked. Right, and the question again here is, what's going on there? And, and that's our and, and that's our goal, 
right? As producers, that's really what we're always striving for is the story that, you know, gets its hooks into you and won't let go, that you, that you just can't stop listening to because it's so engrossing. So, yeah, the question then is, how does that process of in, in, engagement work? It's like a, a, the perfect storm is the, is the easy metaphor here of narrative style, right? Style and story on one hand, on one side of the speakers, uh, and the anticipation or even expectation of that form on the other side of the speakers or of the screen from the, from the audience, from the listener. Uh, and the two come together, obviously, in a total engagement, in, in a total alignment, in, in a total groove, not unlike on the dance floor, a very mechanized beat happening last night at that suburban bar. <laughs> and... Uh, and yet, people were finding identity on that floor. It seems similar to me in some ways. A totally mechanized process, a narrative style. Certainly in the case when you move into classical narrative, which we've mentioned several times, and we just felt like we need to throw in quite overtly. And there's no place better to go than to Alfred Hitchcock, especially at this period of his, of his storytelling making. Uh, and again, we'll talk more about that process of listening uh, next chapter here. But uh, to, to look at this, it seems to me that uh, Ben has mentioned elsewhere, not necessarily today, he's used the phrase rigorous causal action to set up as a way of, it definitely is a way that radio docs are told, but it also can be considered the opposite. A lot of what we've been talking about is not that. It's something else. In a, in a, in a slide we skipped over, there's a psychological realism to radio docs that arguably isn't the case in something as, as hardcore causally related as a classical Hollywood narrative. Uh, let me just try to underscore that claim or to defend it by showing a quick clip from Notorious. The setup here is the war is on, uh, Ingrid Bergman, is, his father's kind of a, anyway, he's got a past that the government was able to use to, make, to enlist her aid to hang out with a Nazi guy, hang, Claude Rains, uh, hanging out in Brazil, and she quite literally moves into his life and has him marry her uh, in order to get these secrets that go on in his crazy life as a Nazi, or a supporter of the Nazi movement. And so she, her trick now is to get the key. He's got a key on his key ring that will let her get to Cary Grant, that the two of them can go down and get something in the basement. And she's got to get that key in a causal logic chain of two minutes, maybe less. I don't even know how long this is. And 
that's in the scene, but we have to have this transitional shot to underscore the point again of causal logic. The super fantastic uh, crane shot, there were no zoom lenses yet invented, that is super cool, but not in the movie, movie solely because it's super cool. There's a causal logic driving this camera movement. You'll see why. And so there's the key. Yeah. I guess it's pretty evident, but just since we're talking about it so much, could you define causal logic? One damn thing after another. Maybe one way of saying it. In other words, we have this really clear sequence. She needs to get this thing. Yeah. She needs the key. We see where she puts the key. Yeah. Let me do it this way. I'm going to watch that clip. And again, and just as a reference the the Sonic Memorial clip we heard earlier. I mean, that's that, and that's probably the reason why we follow that that little piece of tape is there is this causal, there's a very clear causal sequence, you know, it's like the day is established, you know, people arrive at work, the buildings collapse, they're, you know what I mean? It's like th these events kind of all really, the one triggers the next one, triggers the next one. Let me underscore by just going through it without the soundtrack uh, and see if that, uh, the, the drive here, again, moving into the space, right, setting up an outside, moving in on these three transitions, pretty classical in the way we always have an establishing shot inside, there she is, rather than cut to a medium shot, she walks into it, but it's all being driven, there's a glance and there's an object cut, the very glue of classical model, there's an objective, there's a very subjective moment, that glance enabled us to, it's as if she's walking up to those keys, we assume, in fact, that she is, but in fact, in the reverse shot, we'll see that that was completely psychological. It was the intensity of the moment. Now she needs to enact what she just imagined, or we need to enact to make the point. Right, the glance object cut, she's down. We're gonna move in on the space with a medium, a close up in order to intensify the moment for us and for her. There, we're in her head now looking at the keys. On the soundtrack is Claude Rain saying things like, darling, I'm awfully jealous, and all that kind of thing. And the shadow thing is pure Hitchcock, pure. And you could have ended the scene there if you were a piddling director, but of course it's Hitchcock. And out he comes, and we're gonna now play with the direct, with the uh, sort of, what information do you know? Which hand is it in? Right, a minor deal, but this is suspense. This is the nature of suspense. When he's called the suspense director, it's not about th thrasher, it's not about knives, it's about this, right? Just the fact that you do that. To me, this is a driveway moment in, in a driveway film, in a form that I happen to like and teach. But it is uh, the equivalent to me. The, the, I am engaged, I am on the dance floor, I am so in there, I am next to a woman gasping, right? And I, 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 and I would gasp were I uh, allowed to, according to my gender. Yeah. Hey, could I offer one? Um Sort of opposition, yeah. which is, I, I think one thing about the driveway moment is that it's the nature of broadcast. It's the understanding yeah. that you can't leave right now because it will be gone forever. Yeah. And you know, now that we're moving into a archive and podcasting mode, I, I don't think you get driveway mode. Yeah, totally, definitely. You, you, you know, you can go back at any time, you just press pause. Yeah, but I think the answer is totally yes. But at the time, of course, there was a sort of uh, this, this movie was in your town. It was one of two, on average, that you'd go see a week in the theaters. And there was a, an approximation that was more like that. But now I, I absolutely agree. I, 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 well, let me just respond to that, too, though. I, I would say, though, that if we played a, a piece that was really strong and you know, gripped us, it would grip us now while we're sitting in this room, even though it's not on broadcast. So I think, I mean, I think that's very, I mean, it's, it's a good point to raise about, you know, um, 
this, the, this, the, how, how listening to something live on the air, live on the air, affects our response to it. But I think some of the formal qualities we're talking about exist whether you hear them on the air or on tape or, um, yeah, Starley? Well, I think also people really love having gratified moments. And so I feel like just like people want to be experiencing something and that's why you still go to the movies and like you still do difference listening to the story on the radio live than it is on the internet and I feel like because like people love saying like I was here when it happened and remembering it and I still get like emails all the time about driveway moments and so I just feel like it's part of the experience of what you're I, I mean, I th I, this actually is going to lead into our, I mean, we'll answer a few more questions, but this all, just to note, this leads into the next section that we're going to talk about is how narrative pleasure works and why you like, enjoy, why you enjoy listening to pieces. Someone over here too, yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say that I, I still get those. Uh, that, that even if you're podcasting on all those things, you just don't want it to end. You just, you, even, you'll walk around the block just to keep listening to the podcast. Yeah. So you don't end that thing. So it's it's almost like you. St I think you still have them, even just because you can hit pause. You don't want it to break. You you want to keep going. You're crafted in that moment. Yeah, I mean, a phrase that comes to mind here is that willing to participation of disbelief. You know, from a sort of Coleridge. You know, that, that you you are engaged. You've you've pressed play for a reason. Uh, and the equivalent in my in the iPod experience for me is I stand at a corner. The the walk sign goes on, and I don't. You know, the whole crowd goes on, and I just stand there. Uh, so outside the car, if you will. Um, so I think we need, we're going to push into this then, then open up discussion just to get a couple of things done here. Um, just, to, just to leave this with a set of questions, though, and I transition back into Ben, where we're going to talk about this, this process. Um, again, let's say for argument's sake that they're two different styles. At least it was set up as the opposite of what we do, but we also know it's the same as what we do. So it's a little nebulous on purpose, but they're, in any case, they come to the same point. We're calling it the driveway moment. We're talking total engagement. Now, there are plenty of folks, going back to the 30s and the days of those photographers, Bertolt Brecht among them, uh, sort of, he's, he's not, he's not, doesn't appear on television quite as much as he used to, um, um, who uh, actually found this all very unsettling, uh, the engagement, the full-on engagement. Uh, his theater was very much against this. There are perhaps, and there's plenty of post-structuralist and deconstructionist literary theorists. There's plenty of uh, experimental filmmakers and radio makers who are, would be very uncomfortable with this discussion. Why is it, we're all, again, we're, if we've fallen into the assumptions of the work, audiences expect this. This is what you need. You can't possibly, that pitch session this morning, right? Oh, you can't possibly tell that story if you don't locate it into an individual and, and pursue it on through. Oh, everybody's nodding, me too, but what's going on there? Why, why is that the case? Uh, again, this, is, this just kind of raises, it's like, this is another kind of question that we're not going to answer here, but just <laughs> emerges out of all these, these, these discussions of, of classical. I mean, we really language. could answer it. Uh, but, uh, but we choose but, not to. But in other words, that point of view is that we've been suckered. You've been suckered in. And the reason it comes to mind, again, I was sitting yesterday having my coffee, and the, and the cover of the New York, uh, not New York Times, the Chicago Tribune was, all signs point to panic. And I'm sipping a, a, an espresso and having a, a chocolate chip scone, and yet I should be panicking. <laughs> it's very strange to be here, honestly, while this is going on in some ways and sitting in this dark room. So I just want to ask to myself and therefore to you, to what extent is this? clip unlike what radio docs do or think they do. Is there a tie between narrative structure and political ideology? Uh, something we call progressive storytelling? Is that an old story? We seem to not talk about it as much as we used to, like a lot of things left. Uh, like global capitalism, is it just too annoying, too critical? Not very fun, everything's kind of supposed to be much funner than that. Global economic collapse around us, government takeover of banks. I watched as where I was having wine yesterday on the, on, over Ben's shoulder. There was some guy that looked like, um, 
what's the actor? George Clooney. George Clooney telling me that they, the government was taking over the banks, buying shares of banks. And the end of newspapers and broadcasting, again, I was looking at a headline that basically gone, that newspaper box won't be there pretty soon. Uh, so I'm just thinking it might be a good time to investigate these questions generally and, and in the context of this, uh, in the case of uh, Radio Docs, uh, because the kind of This American Life reporters might be covering quite a different story in, in, the, in the months and years to come. This American, this Canadian, this European life might be quite a different uh, landscape that might require quite a different narrative structure. Uh, so I want to return to this, this question of narrative pleasure that um, Starley brought up. Um, which is certainly important and underlies a lot of what we do as producers. I mean, in some way, that's our goal, right? Our goal is to make the most entertaining, enjoyable story we can make, ultimately. I mean, we have other ideas about meanings we want to convey. Um, uh, I mean, one thing about radio documentary is, as we discussed, this, at this conference, it's less concerned with um, facts, per se, than in some greater truths, right? Um, often a psychological truth. Um, a truth of individual experiences, so that even when we're looking when we're looking at larger, you know, social situations, political phenomenon, we're not, you know, we're not the newscasters. We're often talking about what it's like for an individual to go through an experience. Um, so that the, I mean, the the story that um, uh, Alex Bloomberg and Adam Davidson did about the economy, if you any of you heard that, was on um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, there were stories. They were talking about this very specific, you know, complicated economics. But they were looking at it, they were, they were talking to the guys who were selling the subprime mortgages. Um, so I think that's something that we can recognize as a characteristic of, of the kind of work that we do. Um, at this point, I think it's useful to look at theory of, uh, from films, again, from cinema studies, in terms of talking about this question of how, how we get pleasure from the stories that we try to make in, in radio, um, and particularly uh, a guy named David Bordwell, he's a, a film historian who talks about how films work a lot. And he lays out, um, which I'll just kind of do very quickly, um, uh, uh, he relies on a cognitive model of, of storytelling and, and of perception. Um, he says that uh, perception is an active process. Uh, he talks about a, a model that he calls a searchlight model of perception, where I'm in this room, I'm where the projector of the computer, I look up, there are people around. And from these little pieces of information, I piece together in my mind uh, a sense of what is happening out in the world. It's almost like a, I'm creating in real time a story based on these little pieces of, of information that I gather. And so what Bordwell says is that what we do when we're watching a film, when we're listening to a radio piece, when we're reading literature, is we are similarly experiencing little bits of information provided to us by the maker of the work and we then combine that into a story that we experience. So that we're essentially using when we are, you know, are, are, are experiencing these works, we're using the same mental apparatus we use when we are experiencing our day-to-day -day reality. And that he, what he claims is that that is in itself pleasurable, that that's a form of, of play. Um, collecting all these little bits, all these little bits and making stories, but doing it in a way that it doesn't have any real practical significance. You know, our lives are spent, and we do it, I mean, the reason we do it, obviously, um, on our constant basis is so that we can make our way in the world, so that we can make sense of the world we encounter, you know, so that I won't, you know, I can, I can avoid, I can walk around that table. Um, also, we do it in a more sophisticated way with human behavior, so that I can understand how to interact with people, so I can understand what people might do in a situation. And so that what 
the narrative arts are about is playing with those same kind of ways of perception. Okay. Um, we're going to look at an example. Uh, it's a piece of uh, piece by J. Allison called House Dog. Uh, and one of the reasons why I picked this as an example is because it's, it's very explicit in the way it's a piece about, it's a radio piece in which the, the character in the story is himself gathering bits of audio information, mostly in, in the form of phone calls, that help him advance the story. And so we are kind of going along with this character. The character in the piece is Jay Allison. It's an autobiographical piece. We're going along with the character as he collects these bits of information that help him uh, basically kind of piece his life back together. He's a man who, uh, at the beginning of the story, is he's just gotten through a divorce. He's trying to set up a new household. He's trying to um, figure out what, um, what to bring into his household, essentially kind of the, the idea of home for him being a way of thinking about how to you know, reunify his, his self, which has been fractured by this experience. He's trying to kind of make himself whole again after this, this divorce. And he talks to his kids about how, you know, what does he need in his home to, to feel comfortable in the world again. And his kids suggest a, a dog, as we'll hear. And we're gonna listen to this, it's about a five minute clip. This is kind of the core of this about 15 minute story. What else do I need to get to, for this house to make it uh, any homier? I think it's pretty good, Dad. I like the way it is. You don't think I need to get anything else? A dog? Oh, I want a dog. I do A German Shepherd would be good because they're good with kids and easy to train. If I were to call up people who had dogs for sale, what should I ask them? The dog's record of biting people is. Hello? Uh, hi there. Uh, I'm calling about the German Shepherds in the paper. Oh, yes. I do have a German Shepherd puppies, but what I have left is one female. Uh-huh. And that is all I have left. Yeah. All right. So here, here are my questions. My, the first dog my kids said they wanted was a German Shepherd. Do you have a lot of experience raising German Shepherds? Uh, yeah, but not around kids, really. No? No, not around kids. What do you think about them around kids? Uh, well, they should be good because uh, well, when I was small, I had one. He was always not. But you know what happened the other day? No, what? Uh, look, I was I was a normal person. I'm I'm like normal, right? Yeah. And then like in August, but like uh, three weeks ago, I got like uh, I made like a makeover, and uh, I changed my hair color. I put on perfume. I never put on perfume, and I changed everything. My clothes. And there's this one dog, one of the German Shepherds, and she's like a real mean bitch, and um. I hadn't been there in two weeks, until last week, and then I went into the yard. You know what she did to me? No. She bit me. What do you mean you had a makeover? You mean you changed the way you looked? I mean, yeah, now, I, now I'm curious. Like a little bit depressed and everything, so I changed everything. I changed my clothes, I changed everything. And I started going to the gym and everything, and I lost like 10 pounds in, I don't know, in a month. And I don't know, I must have looked totally different for her. That's funny. I mean, one of the reasons I'm looking for a dog is my life has changed a lot, too. I've uh, My marriage is broken up, and I'm living by myself, and the kids are there a lot, but I'm thinking about getting a dog to make it more homey. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, they would be great about around them. What was your German Shepherd like when you were a little kid? Oh, she was, like, super nice. I mean, 
She was nice. She slept in my room. And she slept on my bed also. <laughs> yeah, because um, I was, like, very lonely. I'm a very... I don't talk to a lot of people. Uh-huh. I'm more of a lonesome person. I... I don't know. I just slept with her and I talked to her. <laughs> oh, excuse I never told anybody, but yeah, I have. When I was sleeping, I, I used to hug her and everything, and she was like, um, she was like my older sister. <laughs> uh, were your mom and dad together? They've always been together, but my dad, like, he's like this. He's not mean. He's not mean, but he has this way of being. He never talks to us. He never hugs us or tells us things. So, so I was really with a uh, dog. <laughs> Do you think you'll always have a dog? Yeah. I think I need a little friend. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. What would you like a dog to be like? Um, playfulness. Uh, cuddly, soft, and stuff like that. What kind of dog do you think I should call about? One that stays small. I don't want a big one. Like what? I don't know. No, one of like the little ones that like Britney Spears has and Mariah Carey has. They're like this big and they're so cute. And that means you can carry them around with them like little babies? Is that the idea? Yeah. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Well, I don't want a big one that like... Ugh. How about a beagle? What do you think of beagles? I love beagles. I love them. Oh, I want a beagle. <gasps> Hello? Uh, hi there. I'm calling about your beagle puppies. Sure. What would you like to know? Are they pretty friendly? Oh, they're lovable. Yeah? Yeah. They're very friendly. They're very lovable. Okay? They demand love. Okay? And they demand passion, you know, from, from the owner. How do they demand it? By, by following you around, wanting to hug on you, and wanting to jump up on you. Do you think a dog can love you? Oh, yes. I've got a dog that's a poodle, okay? That's particularly mine. Uh-huh. And I have a bad heart, okay? And every time that I go in the hospital, she's lost. She'll, she'll sit and scratch at every door in the house. She'll go to the window and scratch. She'll sit and... And look for me every every place in the house. If I'm in bed, okay, she'll stay in bed with me till I get up to make sure that I'm getting up. If I lay back down in bed, she'll get back in bed. So she just sticks with you. Yeah. We're, we love our dogs, you know. Yeah, I need a heart, okay? It's down to that. Oh, yeah. Are you on a waiting list? Nope. How's that going to work then? Well, you live your life as you can. Maybe I'll come back as a dog. (laughs) (laughs) And what happens as the the piece goes on and the conclusion at the end is that this character, um, Jay Allison, uh, he acknowledges that everyone has holes in their lives, um, but if, if people share, if we share those stories then our lives become, become bearable. Um, the people he talks to have deep problems, but they've all accepted their problems and share them with his, and that kind of accept, helps them accept his problem. Um, and so in terms of this, well, we're going back to this kind of cognitive approach to, uh, uh, 
to storytelling and our pleasure in the story, you know, as the audience, we start with an unclear, fragmented version of who the character is. We haven't really met him yet um, until the story progresses. With bits of the stories and sound, we gain, gain a sense of who he is as a character. Uh, and the character, Jay Allison, in the course of the story, gains unity as a character within himself um, by hearing the stories of others. Um, and so also I would say through that, we identify, we listeners identify with the character because we're both seeking this uh, uh, structure of a sense of self, which we get these little pieces of phone conversations and the conversations with his, his kids. Um, so I mean, that's kind of a, a very basic kind of way of looking at how uh, we make sense of the story through these bits of information. I mean, some things that we're, we're not talking about here, but I think are worth noting are things like humor. Um, which, I mean, a lot of the reason this story works and is so attractive in a way because it's, it's, it's funny and, and, and is engaging in that way, and that's something we're not talking about here, but, but also could be addressed at, at another point. Yeah, I think given the time, I, just, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to know if those people knew they were being recorded. I assume they did. I've never asked him. Jay said he might. Well, yeah, you know, I assume I assume that they did, and I and and he cut that out, um, and I'm I know I can guess why he cut that out because it would have changed the kind of the whole nature of the storytelling. Um, yeah. Doesn't it usually work that you, you just you call up, you record, and then uh, the first thing you ask after you say hi, I'm calling about listen, I'm doing a story, blah blah blah. Would you mind if I take this? I would expect that's yeah yeah. And you're actually I think legally required to do that. It's yeah. Only in some Oh, really? yeah, it's a <laughs> Not on cell phones. You don't have to do it on. <laughs> I think. Uh, oh, I think in the interest of time, we're going to collapse a couple of things here and move towards an ending. But Ben's put together some pretty uh, interesting clips. The the thing we wanted to talk about next, as a way of moving out of this discussion and into a more broad discussion in the few minutes we have left, <clears throat> was uh, auteur theory. And I'm sure everybody in here knows it. But again, one, the last cinema thing I promise we'll bring into this. But you know, the, the bunch of eggheads in France in the 50s sitting around. Uh, watching a lot of movies, especially Hollywood, American movies, previously thought of at least among the critical community as trash and stupid and commercial, and, and then uh, marshalling it uh, as, as evidence of art, Hitchcock becoming one of their most favorites, not accidentally, uh, and sort of moving into what then became the new wave style. And the reason that it comes to mind is the question is, we asked early on, in radio doc world, in this general world we're talking about, are there sort of predictable, artorist stylistics uh, you know, <clears throat> that becomes sort of in themselves uh, mechanism, th th this American life field, right? That kind of storytelling, but in this case, associated with the producer, with the romantic artist, the person who has somehow risen out of the muck of industrial storytelling, above the, even the muck of NPR, and is somehow above all of that, right? And is the artist. And, and, and not just to celebrate that, but to find formal elements in it. And to recognize that it is a case, I mean, I mean, even this piece, this Jay Allison piece, I mean, at least I, I recognize the kind of characteristics of his, his storytelling. I mean, this, I, this whole notion of, of um, the value of sharing stories and exchanging stories, how that's like an essential component of the human existence. I mean, it occurs in his stories, I mean, over and over and over again. And I think, it, I mean, if you look at Jay, it was kind of interesting to think of him too as, as a person who does things, who sets up these institutions within our world of public radio that also, you know, have that same kind of mission and same attitude. Uh, 
Yeah, and, and then the last, the last point into these clips is that to me it's really, a reason I wa we wanted to do auteurism is that it so informs, in my mind, what we mean by independent these days, the, the, the connotations of I'm an independent producer. Really, I think that, obviously, there's the independence from the system is an, is an old idea in many, many different cultures and many, many uh, different economic systems. But in this case, I really do think it goes back to there conveniently. You know, and every time I go into a still existing DVD shop, there it is, by director. Right. That that was uh, you know. It's, they still organize. Why do they pick those directors? Why those? Why why those Anderson guys? I never you know. Why those guys and not just that auteurs and the, the honoring of the individuality. So given that, uh, uh, Vince put together some stuff here. Yeah, we're just gonna take a, a brief um, a brief look. A little. Uh, this is a montage of opening sequences of um, while we're on the Hitchcock role of um, uh, Alfred Hitchcock openings. Um, and um, I mean, certainly we'll see kind of a, a structural similarity there. Um, I mean, beginnings are very important, I think, in telling in terms of you know, setting up the relationship that the viewer or the listener has with a piece. I mean, we all talk about, you know, when, when that the intros we write as stories, for radio stories, set up a contract between the listener uh, and the story. Uh, well, I think the beginnings of stories being films, of, of films also do the same thing. So we're going to see here, just take a quick look at, this is a little um, montage of, of openings from uh, Alfred Hitchcock opening scenes, and you'll see it's, it's clear similarities. Last night, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. It seemed to me I stood by the iron gate leading to the drive, and for a while I could not enter, for the way was barred to me. Actually, it's a gate you then, see here normally. Like all dreamers, I was possessed of a sudden the supernatural powers and passed like a spirit through the barrier before me. This is some shadow of a doubt. did you? I better get back to the office. These extended lunch hours give my boss excess acid. And 
This is a vertigo. Kind of hard to see, but... Here we're literally entering into this eyeball world of this person. Listen to another set of montage of beginnings. This by a different uh, producer. Did he? Did this person know uh, Hitchcock? Uh, no. <laughs> okay. This this is uh, clearly structural similarities. Entering into the world of individuals, the secret world of individuals, um, but this time from a kind of different perspective with a different attitude. And we can talk a little bit about after this. Good morning, Jeffrey. It's time to get up. Let's go. Right, a little different, <coughs> little different feel than the Hitchcock openings. What's going on? It's Jeff. 6.20. Got to get up and go to school. I'm getting ready for school right now. Just got out of the shower and got dressed. And now I'm getting ready to heat up my usual TV dinner that I have for breakfast. I think I'll have a spaghetti bolognese. Christelle. Six o'clock, time to get up. Come on. 6 a.m. It is uh, 6.30. I'm tired. Better get me a shower. All right, fellas, it's 5.30. Get dressed, make your beds up. Let's go. Time to get dressed. 5.30. I'm walking around now, coming out my room. Come on, let's go. Let's move. Move your body. What's up, what's up? Well, it's time to get up. Hi, Mom. 7.40 in the morning, and I'm walking to school. The delighted barks of Freckles the dog. All right. Um, now, I mean, there are obviously similarities here. People kind of, be, you know, we're moving into these private worlds, but I think the differences um, reveal a lot about um, the different attitudes of the these creators. I mean, uh, uh, I mean, in the Hitchcock films, of course, you're you're a voyeur. You're not being invited into this world. You're kind of moving into this thing that's shameful and hidden. Um, and Joe's pieces, you know, the day is the beginning. The person's about to confront whatever their lives throw at them. And that thing is, that large extent is, is what his pieces are about. It's about how people confront these challenges that are, that, that are presented to them. Uh, I mean, there's also this very fundamental difference, too, uh, in that uh, in Joe's pieces, the person is given a tape recorder, obviously, and they invite us into their world, where in the Hitchcock films, I mean, it's anything but that. We're, we're spying in. We're not invited. We're not supposed to be there. Um, and then there's also a difference here, too, um, which is maybe a good place to, to close out the difference between you know, watching and listening between film and, and radio um, and there's a quality of difference in terms of you know, being a voyeur and being a listener and being invited to listen in 
You know, I'd like to throw an ending up here and, and, and just leave it at that then. And we started a little late, so perhaps we could stay late if you want to, want to talk. But I mentioned Brecht, and I, I had this sort of renewed interest in him, I suppose, which is to say I mentioned his name three times now. So I, <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I just came across this again while Ben and I were working on this, and I just want to read a, a little bits of it and think about it uh, as, a, as a closure. Uh, in, in our society, one can invent and perfect discoveries, he wrote in 1932, uh, that still have to conquer their market and justify their existence. In other words, discoveries come along that uh, have not been called for. There was a moment when technology was advanced enough to produce the radio, and society was not yet advanced, not yet advanced enough to accept it. The radio was then in its first phase of being a substitute, right? McLuhan calls it rearview mirrorism, that new media tend to like reflect the past. They're substitutes for a while until you figure out what the medium is. A substitute for theater, where radio was at this point, opera, concerts, lectures, cafe music, all the stuff it was supposed to do. This was the patience uh, period of Halcyon Youth. One more clip here. I'm not sure if it's finished yet, he writes but in 1932. But if so, then this stripling who needed no certificate of competence to be born will have to start looking retrospectively for an object in life. Just as a man or woman will begin asking at a certain age when his first innocence has been lost, what he is supposed to be doing in the world. And he goes on to suggest then what he wishes radio would become. He wishes it would become an apparatus not for distribution, point to out as a broadcast system, but in fact as a, what he calls communication. The radio would be the finest possible communication apparatus in public life if it were a vast network of pipes. That is to say, if it, would, it, would, uh, it would be if it knew how to receive as well as to transmit, how to let the listener speak as, to well, as well as to hear, how to bring him into a relationship instead of isolating him or her. On this principle, the radio should step out of the supply business and organize its listeners as uh, suppliers. Clearly, a call, it seems to me, for what we now know as a sort of a cut-and-mix, net-driven, net-web-supported apparatus of our moment, it seems to me. I wonder what he would think, in fact. Uh, there's a new substitute in town, you could say, and, and it is what we all know it is, it is. Radio is still a part of that, clearly. You're all a part of it. We're all a part of that. But we're a part of it as, uh, in terms of building stories. We're a part of it as constructing narratives. We're a part of it as, as juxtaposing sounds and found and created. What is radio? have to do with it then anymore, or, or television, or the, the word film, or, or newspapers. Well, what do they have to do with this anymore? Whatever the radio sets out to do, he finishes up, it must strive to combat the lack of consequences which makes such asses of almost all our public institutions. We have a literature without consequences, which not only itself sets out to lead nowhere, but does all it can to neutralize its readers by detecting each object and situation stripped of the consequences to which they lead. And we have educational establishments without consequences, working frantically to hand on an education which leads nowhere and has come from nothing, clearly meaningless in today's culture. We don't even know what he's talking about. So here's the last set of questions, at least from me, and we'll open it up. What is radio with consequences in the current context? What does that look like? Have we talked about radio with consequences here today? Is it over with, since this was written in the 30s, or is radio with consequences still to come? Uh, last slide that is this. And so we have a few minutes for discussion if we want to uh, do that. Obviously a lot of ideas spewed out and do people have thoughts about any of this? Questions? Yeah. About the, the linear nature of storytelling, I used the word earlier in telling a story, but sometimes I have students who want to 
go off putting Tarantino on a radio story and just hope it works out at the end. Uh, you know, it's harder to do than you think, but I don't want to discourage them, but I want, I want them to have a line of thought. Do you have thoughts on that? Uh, well, you mean nonlinear storytelling? It's well, it's hard. I mean, it's hard because I mean, um, I mean, we all know how to do linear storytelling. We know how to think about it. I'm not sure we're so good at thinking about how to tell nonlinear stories um, in radio. Um, there's not as much of a history of it. Um, you know, I mean, my I mean, my basic thought about that, I guess, just off the top of my head, is that. Um, it's something that you have to be really, you really have to know how the medium works to be able to do that. You know, it's not the first thing you probably want to start out doing. Um, I mean, the, like the Ross McElwee piece, I think is kind, of a good, is kind of a good example of that. I mean, the reason why that works is because of his expertise and his sophistication in terms of structuring that, that thing he's making. And I think this is basically the same for radio. Is you, have, you can do that, but you have to have a real kind of sophistication and, and, and depth of understanding and be a really good writer to do that. I mean, there are radio people who kind of do that. I mean, Scott Carrier does that a little bit. They kind of, his stories kind of loop around and kind of circle a little bit. Um, and probably he can do it because he's such a good writer. I think, I think yeah. No. I mean, in the day when I had to teach, uh, uh, among other things, uh, intro to news broadcasting video packages, uh, you know, I was such a drag of a teacher because I would make them absolutely do narrative forms. Or I, and when I have to teach experimental video, sorry. And it, and, but I would make them do a standard news package before I'd let them go crazy. Uh, with the supposition being presented here and I think shared, and I, it seems to, inarguable to me, it's the, it's the central, it's the way in which we make sense of it in a, in a, in a linear, logical world that's falling apart at the moment, but that proves the point. It's, it's, it's linearly illogical as long as you invest properly and, and, and believe in it, and then as soon as you don't, things, things fall apart. So maybe that's where you, you are also in that, in that netherworld. But I think the best experimental stuff in my, that I ever see is absolutely because those people know the, the classical model off of which they're, that they're messing with, that they're screwing against, that they're projecting against. Okay, any other questions or comments or anything? Then I guess we're all done. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks.